We are, like I said, in Psalm chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there. I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into Psalm 19. If you're totally unfamiliar with it, um, I'll, I'll bring you up to speed on what's going on pretty quick, and then we'll, we'll dissect it through. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it, uh, it does amazing things in our hearts and lives. We thank you that um, when we gather together as a church and we look at your word, that I don't have to try to tell a bunch of stories, but instead, um, because stories can, can change a life seemingly, your word can definitely change us, and it promises to do that, and it will do it with far more longevity than we could ever imagine that persuasive stories or persuasive speech could, and so so freeing to stand and teach your word knowing that um, I don't have to have the perfect words, but instead the perfect words already exist, your words, and that we can just look at them and by the power of the Spirit, they can do an amazing work in our life. So would you come now and move through your word and teach us to see you and love you. And as we see your power displayed in this world, and how this psalm describes that, but we also see the amazing power that your word has in our life. Lord, that we would submit ourselves, that we would joyfully submit ourselves to you and your, and your word. We would love your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, likely I picked Psalm 19 because we're doing a Bible reading plan through the year. Um, and so I thought that would be helpful to continually kind of look at what the Bible says about it. So here's what we're going to do. The psalm itself, I think, um, normally I always thought this psalm kind of was divided into two. Uh, it's actually, I think, divided into three parts. So here's what we're going to do. During the sermon, we're going to look at the first two parts. And during the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at the third part. So uh, I'll go ahead and point out the parts to you. And you can see it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, psalm 19, verses 1 through 6 is the first part. Uh, psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 is the second part. And then Psalm 19, 12 through 14, uh, th- those verses, that'll be the time when we look at the Lord's Supper. So you can consider, really, um, the sermon to really extend all the way through the Lord's Supper. Because during right before we look at the Lord's Supper, I'm going to, as briefly as I can, exegete verses 12 through 14. Um, so our entire time will be uh, the sermon, even as we look at the Lord's Supper. So uh, if you grew up in seminary, you read any doctrine books or you know, read any systematic theology, I know last night that's what you were doing, um, and you've ever read anything, you know that the Lord is, is, is in these theology books told us to speak to us in two distinct ways. General revelation, special revelation. General revelation, and we don't mean the, end of, you know, the last book of the Bible revelation, we just mean reveals himself. God reveals himself in general ways. In other words, you walk outside uh, and you look at creation, you look at the trees, you look at the skies, you look at the clouds, you look at all these things and you say, God is revealing himself in a certain way, showing me that he exists as I take in creation. However, uh, I can't stare at the sky and know how to be saved. So that's general revelation. And that's going to be the basic uh, verses 1 through 6. But then there's special revelation. Not only is he revealing himself in a general way, but he has especially revealed himself in his word. And that's where we're going to see verses 7 through 11. And David, the psalmist here, um, explains to us how he has especially revealed himself and how we can specifically know even more about him, more than just the way he's revealed himself in creation, but through his word. There's, There's more things that we can know about God. And I would say general revelation helps us see that we have a creator, helps us understand that we are sinful Uh, in front of this creator, but does not offer us salvation, and yet special revelation does. So um, I'll go ahead and lead with this. I was planning on doing it a little bit later. So the question comes plenty of times, and I've had this conversation um, with, with, you know, a man much older than I at a different church that I worked at one day, uh, where he was saying, so you're telling me, Fudd, that there's a, there's, you know, the, the potential guy, which we all know, that lives in this, in this one particular place in the world where, You know, he never had access to the Bible. We talk about this all the time. Never had access to the Bible. Nobody ever told him about Jesus. He looked out at creation and he sees that there are gods. So he knows that there's a God, but no one ever comes and tells him about Jesus. That particular guy, uh, because he knows that there's a God, he knows that he's a sinner and never hears about Jesus. What happens to him? 
What's going to happen to him? Like, we all have this question. You know, he lived in the 1500s. He lived in the 500s. He lived in a remote island off the, in Fiji. I don't know. So he, he lived way off, and no one ever told him about Jesus. He just looked in the sky. So the question always comes, what happens to him? And I would say, well, general revelation explained to him that there was a creator. General revelation also explained to him who he was in light of this and that he's sinful and not holy. However, special revelation, who Christ is, what he's done, and specifically in his word, was never told to him. So that person, sadly, will perish outside of a knowledge of Christ and then push back. How can that happen? How can a just and right God do this, etc., etc.? And I always point back to them and say, haven't you read Romans 10? Haven't you understood? How will they know unless they're told? And how will they hear unless we go? So that imaginary man that lives out on the remote island that never hears shouldn't make us get mad at God, but instead should compel us as Christians to go tell him instead of spending our time at being mad at God. So that's what we're looking at here when we talk about Psalm 19, how God has revealed himself specifically through creation, but also through his word. And his word then should compel us, compel us into action, personal action, of course, but also to the nations. So Psalm 19 was C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm. Um, And really, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm there is. So Psalm 19, and Psalm 119 is kind of this long, long, I think it's 170-something verses, long set of verses about the, the Bible and what the psalm writers think about the Bible, etc. And so Psalm 19 is kind of a microcosm of Psalm 119. And in seminary, um, I think it was systematic theology, I can't remember which class, when we were given the assignment that we had to memorize Psalm 19 um, in its entirety. And <laughs> the crazy part was I didn't get to come into the professor and kind of get to say it uh, out loud. Instead, I had to come in, put down a piece of blank piece of paper in front of me, and I had to write Psalm 19 completely in its entirety. Make sure I got every capital letter. I couldn't miss a comma. I couldn't miss a, a semicolon or a period. I, I had to write it exactly. The only thing I had to do at the very top is write what version I was going to write. He let us pick the version. And then we had to, we had to write this down completely from memory. Now, that's crazy. I feel like that's, that's pretty hard. And it was r- ridiculously hard because you get a point off for everything you miss. So if you forgot a comma, already a point off. And in seminary, it's a five-point grading scale. So you're going to fail quick. So like you just, I was dying and dying and dying to make sure I got it. However, I think I got it pretty good. My point was, I was telling that is this. As I memorized Psalm 19, the truths of it have stuck with me. And it's just an unbelievably beautiful psalm that explains to us who God is, which is why I think they gave us the assignment so that we can know who God is. So Psalm 19, I'm going to go ahead and read it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll look at it. And as I said, there's really just kind of two, sub, two big points for the sermon, verses 1 through 6, 7 through 11. However, and you know me, I've got five sub points for each one of those. So the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, like, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Rising, it is rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You can see the transition here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the first point is this. It's in verses 1 through 6. God reveals himself clearly through the world. God reveals himself clearly through the world. And as I said, this is general revelation, verses 1 
through 6. Now, what I didn't do this time is I didn't put the five subpoints under each one of these on the screen. So I just want you to listen. Just want you to listen. If you want to take notes, that's fine. But I want you to listen more so than anything else. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This means there is no place on the planet where nature, where the skies, where the heavens are not shouting out about the greatness of God. There's not one place on the planet that you can go where the planet itself, creation itself, is not screaming to you about how glorious God is. Romans 1, verse 18 through 20 says it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and uprightness of unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this is where he starts talking about how creation does this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, okay? What has he shown? How has he shown us that it's plain to know who God is? It says, for God's or his invisible attributes, namely, what are they? His eternal power and his divine nature. So we know that he's God. We know that he's divine. We know that he has eternal power have been clearly perceived. How? ever since the creation of the world, thereby, so it's because of creation that they're perceived, in the things that have been made. So everything that's ever been made is doing something to us. It's screaming out, as it says in Psalm 119, about the glory of God. Namely, it's telling us about the glory of God. He has eternal power, and he has divine nature. That there is a God that he is holy and it's screaming about, out about his glory. And then the Romans ends with this. So since the creation and all the, the skies and heavens are screaming these things out to us, there's something about man we need to know. And Romans chapter 1 uh, verse 20 ends it with this way. So they are without excuse. There is no man that can say, but I didn't know. Every man knows because creation is screaming to him constantly about the glory of God. The purpose of the skies and the heavens and creation is to shout out to every human that's ever lived about the glory of God. So here's the key. God is constantly revealing himself in the world. However, we need to realize as God is revealing himself in the world, it is limited. It is limited, which I've already pointed to. And, and it's limited because it does not save. It does condemn, but it does not save. It makes known to us that there's a creator. And because there's a creator shouting out about his divine nature and his eternal power, it helps us realize that we're without excuse, that we're sinners and that we're, we're without excuse, but it does not tell us how to be saved. However, the psalm writer David, carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote the first six verses, points us to special revelation, how salvation can come, which is through God or Christ. So here's some observations I want to make regarding these first six verses about the way that God reveals himself in the world. The way that God reveals himself in the world. The first one is that we see it's the heavens and the sky. Now, we know that all creation certainly does. You can look at trees and flowers, etc. But the writer here wants us to look at the heavens and the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. So everything that, God is, that is, he has made is speaking to us. The heavens and the sky and really all of creation are telling us something. They are speaking to us. They are ministering to those who will listen. Letting you know that the Lord exists and he has eternal power. The second thing I want you to do is, it, it's not just the heavens and the skies that, are, that, that God has made that do this. But it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then it says in verse 2, day to day pour, pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. So the second thing I want you to realize is this, that, that the heavens... And, and this, the first is that the heavens and the skies are the specific focus. The second thing is that the heavens and the skies are literally pouring out speech. This, this verb that's being used where it says, day-to-day pours out speech. The Hebrew word for that, if you want to take other ways to translate it, can mean gush or spew out. Just imagine like if you opened up a, a fire hydrant and it's just water gushing out. Or if you've ever been at the top of a waterfall as it's just constantly never-ending kind of pouring out on you. This is what the, the sky, this is what the heavens are doing. They're gushing out, pouring out constant, deliberate speech to you by God, screaming to you about his glory and that he exists. 
It's gushing out speech. God speaks through what he's made, and he means that you hear what he's saying to you. He means that you be ministered by these, by these things that he's speaking. Now, here's what, speaking. This is where it gets interesting. It says, if you read it um, one way, it sounds interesting. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. So if we stop there, we can see whose voice is not heard. But we can keep, if we go back up, it says, day to day pours out speech. And if you stop and read verse 3, it says, there is no speech, nor there are there words. So if you juxtapose those two texts, we see that speech is pouring out. But then in some kind of weird way, it's saying, there is no speech, nor are there words. And then it says, whose voice is not heard. So we realize the, that there is speech happening. And their voice is being heard. However, when we say speech, we realize it's not language. It's not language. So God is screaming. It says he's, day by day, he's pouring out speech. But as we look at creation, we, we don't actually hear voices, right? Well, maybe you hear voices in your head, but that's a whole separate issue, right? There's no actual speech being told to us. So this is the third thing I want to observation. There is speaking, but without actual speaking. It's not language. In other words, this is what I mean. It sounds odd. God's communicating, but without actual words. It's visual, not verbal. In other words, God is screaming out speech with colors and contrast and wind and beauty and sunsets and sunrises and mountainscapes, etc. The... He's speaking to us visually, and it's screaming out to us. But he's not, it's not auditory. We don't hear it, but we do hear it. See what I'm saying? But it's not words. They don't actually speak, but they speak volumes to us as we look at creation. Have you ever, I mean, this is my, my, I can't help but do this. There's one certain place over by my house where there's hardly any trees. It kind of breaks open. And at, every day if I'm driving home at, at 5.30 to 6 right now, you know, later on in the summer, it's like 8.30. But we can't help it, right? We can't help but when we're driving and all of a sudden we see the sun going down and like all of the skyscape is, is orange and red and purple and blue. We all want to like take out our phones and be like, man, I got to tweet this. This is unbelievable. Like I'm about to die and I'm like taking, my, taking a picture. We all want to take pictures. It's, it's something inside of us that just screams, take a picture of that and send it to somebody. Or at least I'll take it. I won't tweet. I'll just get home. Christy, look at this sunset. I know, Fudd. It's like the 50 other ones you showed me. But there's like, there's something inside of us that when we see these things, we're just kind of in awe. It's because... In those moments, you have a heightened sense that God is screaming to you about his glory. He's screaming to you, and something inside of you wants to say, I I want to take a picture. Maybe I'm taking a picture of God. No, I'm taking a picture of his work. But still, I'm taking a picture of the glory of God screaming to me. And I want someone else to see the glory of God screaming to me right now. Because you know they're not out in the country like I am. And looking looking at the trees are all in their way or whatever. Even in at nighttime, whenever we see, if we go way out in the country and we see all the stars, we realize that the glory of God is screaming at us and we want someone to see it because we realize that God has wired us to be ministered to in some ways, to hear from him, even through creation. God means for there to be communication from his heart to your heart through creation. God's pouring forth communication through a sky and he's telling you, as Romans 1 said, that he has eternal power and divine nature, that they can be clearly perceived. And every human heart, every human heart wants to know this. Some don't realize it. Some tried their best to push it away. But every human heart wants to know this and wants to be brought into this. The next thing I want you to see, the first is that it's the sky. The second is that it's pouring forth speech. The third one is that it's speaking without speaking. The next one is this. The the sky and the heavens are doing something. As I've said, they're speaking about God. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. God is intending that when we look at creation, we think to ourselves, this was made. Somebody did this. Somebody else is greater than this amazing thing that I'm looking at. 
Someone, when you look at anything that someone does, you look at it and you're like, this is beautiful. The Sistine Chapel or whatever, like, you, this is beautiful. Someone did this. Someone is uniquely, amazingly gifted to do something this unbelievable. So as we look at it, we, we look at its beauty and we appreciate it, but it always makes us think, what I'm looking at, whoever it is, makes me also think of the person that did it. So I, I'm, I appreciate the art, but I also appreciate the one that did it too. I'm like, this is amazing what you did. I can't draw straight lines. Look at this. This is unbelievable. It's the same thing with creation. As we look at it, we're not um, nature worshipers. Nature points us to the person that has done it to help us say, this is amazing. I mean, look, beautiful. But I'm not going to let my thoughts and my worship end here. Instead, it's pushing me to the person that did this. And so as we see creation, the heavens and the, the skies are speaking to us about God. It's making us say, how great is God? Not just how great is the sunset. As you're walking around and you see this, it's the skies or, or whatever, all creation is beckoning you, beckoning you to come out and say, God is amazing. Unbelievable how, how awesome this God is. He's making you scream, glory to God. What an amazing God that would give us this world. Look at this unbelievable creation. So we see here, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So we know it's everywhere. And then we have this... this little last uh, section here in this in verses one through six where it gets pretty interesting all of a sudden he's going to bring in an example of a bridegroom and he says in them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out so we have the sky and the sun it's like a tent and the sun comes out and it goes across the whole tent and it goes back down and he compares this sun rising and going down or the anticipation of the rising every day, like a bridegroom. It says, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. So we, we can't get away from the Lord. But I think that there's something even more interesting here, that he compares it to a bridegroom. Of all things he could compare it to. Now, I know in 2015, the weddings are all about the brides now. Whatever. Fine. But if you want to be more biblical, weddings are about the bridegroom. And then one day when we get to the end, the great wedding is going to be about the bridegroom. So, you know, guys, you should get a little bit more in these weddings. Anyway, that has nothing to do with with what I'm talking about. So think about, consider here, consider with me the bridegroom on his wedding day. Here's, Here's the fifth thing I want you to see is there's obviously a lot of joy in the bridegroom on the wedding day. I mean, that's, that's kind of the underlying thing that we're supposed to understand. When it's the day of your wedding, you are unbelievably excited to begin the rest of, of your life with this, with this woman because you know that this is the beginning of a whole new means and a whole new kind of joy that the Lord has given to you. So... What I want to talk about when it relates to creation is this. The glory of God is meant not just to display the glory of God for you to say, Wow! Glory to Him! He's awesome! But even further, the glory of God is meant for your joy. That's, that's what's going on with the bridegroom. He sees the glory of God and it makes him gasp for air and think this, this God's amazing. But it's not just like, Well, He's awesome! But it's also... A, an unbelievably driving joy in his heart. So the glory of God is meant for you to have joy. Like a bridegroom on his wedding day, anxious and excited, he goes to the wedding super excited because he knows a whole new kind of joy is about to begin. In the same way, the sun every morning is anxious and excited to come up so that the sun over the course of the entire day can put on display the glory of God to every human heart the entire day. And it says, there is none hidden from its heat. Every human sees the glory of God every day. This is, this is unbelievable. This is amazing love that God would do this. 
every day display to us his glory. So that's the first thing. It's, it's a billion degrees in here. It feels like the sun's in this room right now, doesn't it? Good gracious. All right. I hope they're okay downstairs. It was like a sauna a few weeks ago. The kids were like, you know, just in t- wet, white towels, you know, big, huge, hairy chest, like gold chain. Like, you've got a fever for you. No, I'm just kidding. It's ridiculous. What's wrong with me? All right. So um, verse 7, verse 7. So we see the first part that the Lord has displayed himself through the word, that he has clearly revealed himself through the world. Now we're going to turn. And so the psalm writer is not, is not happy to just stop there and say that only the, his existence is through the world, but he also wants to, us to see that he's expressed himself or revealed himself in a general way, but a, a special way as well, namely specifically through his word. So if, if you want to know God, if you want to know who he is, you can find him on the deer stand as the sun comes up and you look at creation. But all you will know is that he exists. But you will not know how to be saved. Verse 7. You're going to see here a little pattern. You're going to see, well, first of it, you're going to see what the word is. And then you're going to see the effect of the word. That's, that's how these verses are, are phrased. The word is something and then it has an effect. And it has a pattern, and, all, and there's six of them, uh, where it says, of the Lord, of the Lord, of Yahweh. So the law of the Lord is perfect. And what's the effect? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And what's the effect? Making wise is simple. You can see the pattern. It's pretty simple. Um, I have five. I know there's six of them, but I did collapse together. I just couldn't figure out how to, how to make two. So Number four and number five, I've collapsed together where it says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, the fear of the Lord is clean. I'll get to that and I'll explain why I made those one, um, but let's look at them. And what we're looking at here are, these are some notes on the word, the five little notes on the word. We're going to see what the word is, it's going to tell us something about the word, and then there's an effect. So the first one we have, the law of the Lord, I should say, here's number two. Are we at number two? Yeah, God reveals himself clearly through his word. Special revelation, seven through eleven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the first thing I want you to realize is this, is that the scriptures are perfect. The scriptures are perfect. They're perfect. In other words, the scriptures are totally sufficient. They're, they don't need help. They're not lacking They don't need an accompanying book so that you can understand them. They're totally sufficient. They are better for your soul. Look what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. They are in and of themselves all you need. They are not lacking. They are better for you and for me than anything else. They're better than TV. They are better than novels. They are better than books. They are better than music. We don't need to tack on anything else to the Bible, to the scriptures, in order to be happy, in order for our soul to be revived. The scriptures in and of themselves are completely sufficient and perfect. They affect you more positively than anything else can. The scriptures can do this. They literally revive your soul. They literally revive your soul. How many times... Maybe you're in this experience right now. I just feel like I'm in a dry period. I just feel like I'm in a dry period. The only way that your soul will be revived is through the scriptures. The only way. The scriptures are totally sufficient for your soul. If you see in verse 10a, he he expresses why he thinks this. He says, more to be desired than they, than gold, even much fine gold. So, If we were given the choice of gold or the Bible, we should choose the Bible over gold. Every time. There is no amount of money that's better than God's word. John Piper looking at this verse says, So if you do choose gold over the Bible, you're just like a child picking the penny over the dime because it's bigger. If you're tempted to read your texts, your email, your Facebook line, your Twitter line, or whatever, every morning when you get up, over the Bible, 
instead of the Bible, and maybe even, and I don't want to be legalistic, before the Bible, that's legalistic maybe in your mind, but at least instead of, then you're just like the child that picks the penny over the dime because you think it's bigger when it has no value comparatively. And I'm not saying the Bible is only worth 10 times more than your Facebook tweet to a line or whatever it's called. Feed, that's what it's called. Instead, it's infinitely better. So when we see here, the, the law is perfect. The word literally gives you life. It revives your soul. And that's why we choose it over money or any other substitute. It's completely sufficient. The scriptures are perfect. The second one is, says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the word of the Lord is sure. This means the scriptures give wisdom. The first one is that they're perfect. The next one is that they give you wisdom. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be wise. We all want to grow, not just in intelligence, but in wisdom. We want to know what to do in situations, the things that please the Lord. We don't want to make unwise choices. We don't want to make unintelligent choices, but we don't want to make unwise choices. The scriptures do this. They are sure. They are sure. This means that they're relevant. They're relevant to any situation that you're having. They give wisdom to your specific in every situation. The scriptures are always relevant in every situation you're in. We don't have to try to make the scriptures relevant for a situation. They already are relevant. They already are giving you wisdom to know what to do. It says literally that it makes wise the simple. It makes wise... I'm a simple person. We're all pretty, really simple. But because of the scriptures, as we look at it and as we seek it and as we see what the Lord has told us and we literally strive to do those things, it makes the simple wise. It causes us to do wise things and thereby also making us wise people. Making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It helps us see that the most relevant reality that ever existed is Jesus. All right, the next one is this. You can see it right there in verse three, the pre, eight. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right. The first one is that the scriptures are perfect. The second one is that the scriptures give wisdom. The next one is that the scriptures point you to true joy. The scriptures point you to true joy. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. This is true joy. This is speaking of true joy when our heart is rejoiced. Psalm 1611, which if you're going through the Bible reading plan, you read this week. It says, I'll I'll flip over. I have it. Type it. I want to read it out of the Bible. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Remember, I'm talking about when we read this, we're, we're looking at rejoicing the heart. Where can I find true joy? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The scriptures point us to God. So the way that our heart is rejoiced, because the scriptures point us to God, and at God it says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the scriptures point you to true joy. We, we search, we are like um, lost sheep searching out continually in this world for joy. We, we, we can't help but continually look for joy. And the scriptures are saying, I know that this is what your heart is looking for. I think it was Augustine that said, my, my heart wanders until it's found in you, something like that. But this is exactly who we are. And the scriptures are pointing us and saying, true joy resides specifically in the Lord. Look what it says in the second half of 10b. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. David is thinking something that that is one of the best tastes that he's ever had. And he's saying, your word is better than that. The word of God causes our heart to rejoice and has an effect on our lives where anything that this world has to offer, and he compares it with something, the most enjoyable thing he could think of to eat. Your word's better than that. As it says in verse 8, It brings true rejoicing to our heart. So the scriptures point you to true joy. So for those of you that are constantly trying to seek out, you have a wandering heart and you're constantly trying to seek out true joy in in any number of things, whether it be relationships or power or meaning or finally getting that fill-in-the-blank job degree, whatever. 
The Lord is where you can find your true joy. He is the place of true joy. The next one is the commandment of the Lord. As I said, I've collapsed this and the fear of the Lord because they both say the commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. And to me, those two things are just kind of pointing us to the same thing, clean and pure holiness. This is all just pointing to the same thing. So the commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. They're pointing us to this reality that the scriptures themselves are pure and holy. The scriptures themselves are pure and holy. Theologians will say this, the scriptures are inerrant, without error. God says it this way, that they're pure and holy. They're pure and holy like Jesus. As we know in John 1, 1, where it talks about Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word... The Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus being the, the Word given to us, as he's talking about the way this Word looks. The Word is the revelation of God. That's what the Bible is. And this is why Jesus, when he came to the world, he was introduced to us from the book of the John as the Word. He is the revelation of God to us, and he is pure, and he is holy. He is the picture of the Word made holy. That's what Christ is. And so here we see that The scriptures themselves are pure and holy. And what did they do? They literally enlighten your eyes. They enlighten your eyes. The scriptures enlighten your eyes so that you can see Christ more clearly. You want to see Christ. You want to know who he is. You want to understand who he is and what he's done and understand the gospel more. You're going to have your eyes more and more enlightened by looking in the word. This this is the destination to see Christ most clearly. So the scriptures, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It's clean, it's holy, it's pure. And it's where we can have our eyes enlightened. The last one is the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The rules of the Lord are true. This, this is telling us that the scriptures are true. This is important. This is important. The scriptures are true. Theologians will say it this way. It's infallible. God says True. This means that it's dependable, it's unfailing, it's reliable, it's sound, it's fail-safe, it's trustworthy, it's steady, it's solid, it's sure, it's certain, it's perfect, it's flawless. It's absolutely true. The word itself is true. This is huge, especially in our kind of postmodern age where we live in a culture that everyone's skeptical of truth. They believe that there is no absolute truth or they... They believe that that's true for you, but not true for me. And that's impossible. If something is true, it's true. And truth is not relative. So the word is saying, no matter what time period, no matter what culture, no matter what gender, no matter what, the word itself is true. The word claims to be altogether true. And then it says, the words of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. So they're completely righteous. They point us to how to know and be righteous. So we, we see this now. We see a lot of things about the world and how it's revealed to us. And we see things about the word. I want, I want, you, to, I want you to ask yourself, okay, I've seen these things about the scriptures. That they're perfect. They give wisdom. They lead to true joy. They're pure and holy. And they're true. I want you to think to yourself, do I believe that? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that the word is perfect? Do I really believe that the word gives wisdom? Do I really believe that it points me to true joy? Do I really believe that the scriptures are pure and holy? Do I really believe that they're true? And then read verse 11 with me. Moreover, by them, the scriptures, your servant, that's us, is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. In other words, in seeing the scriptures, in obeying the scriptures, knowing Christ and living for Christ, there is great reward. I want you to ask, do you really believe that verse? That we're warned by them and keeping them is great reward. I've said this before. I don't know how long it's been. But one of my professors in seminary, he had this math problem. But it didn't involve any numbers. This was my, uh, one of my favorite professors. 
ethics professor. He said, you have your stated belief. I've asked you, do you really believe these things? Do you really believe that the word is true? Do you really believe that the word is holy and pure and brings you to, to wisdom and gives you wisdom and pr- points you to true joy? He had this little math problem. You have your stated belief. And if you add that with your actual practice, this is what I believe, but this is what I do. That equals what you actually believe. So let me ask again. Do you really believe what verse 11 is telling you? Do you believe that by being in the word daily, you will be shown how to sin less? You'll be shown how to love Jesus more? Do you believe that there is great reward for living a life that reflects that you love Jesus Christ and want to glorify him with every breath you draw, every decision you make, and every action you do? If you say that you do, but you don't actually do those things, you don't actually live out day to day reflecting that you think the scriptures are true. You're never in them. You never find them as pure and holy. You never let them lead you to true joy or get wisdom from them. If you say all these things that you believe it's perfect and give wisdom and gives you true joy and pure and holy, but you never do them, then you don't actually believe that. But here's the good deal. I think this is the best, best news there is of the entire sermon. You can begin this today. You don't have to have this kind of like, man, I really want that to happen one day, or I'm just, I guess I'm, I'm out. That's not me. You can begin this today, and the rest of your life from this point forward can reflect that you really, your belief system is really consistent with what you actually practice. I believe the word to be these things. Therefore, that's what I actually do practice. And for the rest of my life, I want to live a life that shows that I really do believe the scriptures are true. I really do believe that they're pure and holy. I really do believe that in Christ, knowing Christ, the scriptures lead me to real true joy, that they actually give me wisdom on how to live and that they are absolutely perfect. Just because you haven't done it yet or you've done a half-hearted attempt at it doesn't mean that right now you can't continually start now doing it. You're not going to do it perfectly. I'm not saying you will. But I'm saying you can resolve in your mind to say, Man, if, if the word is truly these things, then what am I doing? Absolutely that. That's what I want. I'm going to pray. We're going to have a little bit of explanation for Lord's Supper, and then I'm going to, we're going to look at the last part of, of this psalm. But let's pray. God, help us see that your word is good and that your word does amazing work with us. Help us be the kind of people that trust in you. Trust in your word. Help us be the kind of people that cry out for your word to be present in our lives. Help us, Lord, to want to know you to want to see your glory, to want to magnify, as it says, glorify you as the skies and heavens do, to be transformed, to have our souls stirred, have our souls revived. Help us be satisfied in you and nothing else that this world offers. Your word can do this. Help us be in awe of it. Help us be a people that tremble at the sound of your voice, Lord as we see it every day in your scriptures and as we see it every day in your world and it declares to us like the skies and the heavens, your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper. Um, The Lord's Supper is for Christians. If you're not a believer, this is what I want you to do. I want you to just observe and just watch and just see if Um, As you observe, see if the Lord shows you a deeper understanding of the good news of Christ. He will. He promises that he will in his Bible. He says that as we take the Lord's Supper, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is actually proclaimed or preached to you visually. So this is for Christians. The Bible also tells us that before we take the Lord's Supper, we don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. So I want to encourage you to During this song, think and reflect on who you are in Christ. Reflect 
maybe that there's some sin that you need to confess. But that never keeps you from taking the Lord's Supper. Instead, it drives you to Jesus where you say, my only hope is Jesus. So I must take the Lord's Supper so that I have a visual representation showing that my only hope is Jesus. Listen to this song. And as it's playing, you can come to the front or you can go to the back, get the bread, get the juice, come back to your chair um, and wait. And I'll come up after the song and we'll take the Lord's Supper together as a congregation. Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14, I think answers a question for us, which is this. How do we, as people who love God, believers in Jesus, deal with sin in our life? We have ongoing sin, and how do we deal with it? David clearly loves God. He he talks about how he's more desired than gold, sweeter than drippings from the honey comb. So we know that he loves God. And I think that as we can answer that question in verses 12 through 14, that we can get a better understanding of what the Lord's Supper is pointing us to. There's a couple ways that's being shown to us in this scripture that, that we sin. A couple ways. You say, who can discern his errors? Declare me from hidden faults, innocent from hidden faults. And so there's, there's a sense in which when we sin, it, it's kind of surprising to us. Who can discern his errors? In other words, I can't understand why I do this. Paul, Paul talks about this in, verse, in, in Romans chapter 7. These are things we do that I don't understand. Who can discern his, his errors? This, there's a mystery to these sins that I do. Or as it says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And so there's a way that we sin that's surprising to us, that's mysterious, and it's hidden to our minds that we can't understand why we do it. That's kind of the first way. But then there's a second way. Verse 13 says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. NIV, which I can't believe this, I like better. It says willful sins. Keep your servant from willful sins. And maybe I just don't understand the word presumptuous because I don't use it very much. But I understand willful. Willful is saying, I know that that's sin. I know that it's wrong. I know what God says. I know it's harmful. And I'm going to say, I don't care what God says. And I'm going to do it anyway. See the difference between those two? One is, why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. The other one is, I know it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway. So how do we deal with that? I think that's a key for us in the Lord's Supper. David, in this psalm, tells us who can discern his errors. He calls them hidden faults in the end of 12, but he says, declare me innocent. So the first way we can deal with it is praying that the Lord would forgive us. God, forgive me and declare me innocent. I want to be forgiven of these things. This is asking God to declare you. And then more than that, this is believing that those sins are covered and forgiven when you pray that way. This is David back before it was cool being gospel-centered. Being gospel-centered forever. This is gospel-centered. Praying for forgiveness and believing that the Lord has declared you innocent. And then walking forth in that life knowing the sins I'm going to commit, I'm even already forgiven. And I don't want to live in them. I don't want to do them. But I already know that I'm forgiven. This is the bigness of the gospel that is inconceivable sometimes. So the first way is we pray for forgiveness and we believe it. We be gospel-centered. So we have these hidden sins. We have these willful sins. These surprising sins, if you will. The first way we deal with it is, as he says, declare me innocent. We, We pray and we receive the truth of the gospel. But then also, in verse 13, he tells us, keep back your servant. So this is also a prayer. This is like the first one, declare me innocent. The second one is, keep back your servant also from willful sins. So he's begging God. There's also sins I do that I just, I just know that they're wrong and do them anyway. And I'm begging you, God. It's different than the first. Not just declare me innocent, but fill me with the Spirit and give me power that I don't like them. I don't want them. 
When I see them, I say, no. Keep me away from willful sins. Not mysterious that I'm surprised that I did it, but instead, willful sins. And we can experience this. We can experience both being gospel-centered, declared innocent, righteous, forgiven, and being given the power of the, of the Spirit to kill sin in our life. And understanding both of those helps us understand what the Lord's Supper is all about. That we're forgiven, but we also have been given power to never sin again. And then that's why he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I already am, and I'm going to continually live in it by not sinning anymore. Now, you're not going to get perfect, but you will be blameless because you already are, but you also will be blameless and innocent because that's the way that you're going to live. It's both and. And then he just ends with 14, one of my favorite, one of my favorite verses. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. David ends this pointing it right to the heart of the matter. Sinning less, killing sin, being forgiven of sin is always a direct V-line to worship. It goes straight to the heart because my worship matters, God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my worship, be acceptable in your sight. Not because of me. I'm not the rock. I'm not the redeemer. I'm not the Lord. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the taking of the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of all these things. That you've been declared innocent and you have been and have the power to be empowered so that you can walk out, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, symbolizing his broken body. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And remember the gospel. And in the same way that night, he took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup and the new covenant, the good news, the gospel in my blood. His blood would be shed the next days for the forgiveness of all of our sins that we've done and will do. This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink and remember the gospel. And as we've taken the Lord's Supper, we're going to live out this last verse. That the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart right now as we stand in worship and song will be and are pleasing to the Lord.